You can keep up with all the episodes of the Journalism Salute by checking out our newsletter. The link is at the bottom of the show notes. Hope you'll subscribe. And let us know where you're listening from and what you think of the podcast. Email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Adrian Johnson-Martin. Adrian is the executive editor at MLK50.com. Adrian has been an editor for more than 30 years for the LA Times, the Raleigh News and Observer, Duke Magazine, and now MLK50, for which she's been with the last two and a half years. She's a graduate of Syracuse with a master's from Columbia Journalism. MLK50 was founded by Wendy Thomas, a longtime columnist and managing editor at the Memphis Commercial Appeal. It focuses on poverty, power, and public policy in Memphis and the systems that make it hard for workers to make ends meet issues that Martin Luther King cared deeply about. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being up for doing this. My first question is the same question that we ask everyone. What's your journalism origin story? I think, I don't know that I had a particular point, but I think I grew up in a family. I grew up in New York City. At the time I was growing up, there was, I think, Four dailies, New York Times, New York Post, Daily News, Newsday. And so I grew up in a newspaper reading family. And so, but I don't think I knew that, you know, there was a job called journalist until maybe junior high school, middle school. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't think of it. I thought of it as a, being an author rather than being a journalist, but I joined my high school newspaper. And so that's probably when I first said, yeah, oh, I could do this for a, a living <laughs> and then decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I actually wanted to start on in magazine. And that's where my degree from Syracuse is in magazine journalism. Can you tell us about your background and if there's anything, you mentioned the, the connection to newspapers. I share the, the same four-paper household deal. Is there anything in your family or heritage that lends itself to storytelling? Just that, I guess you would say, you know, my family, my parents were born in New York as well, but my extended family is from the South, on my mother's side, from Charleston, South Carolina, and and they're storytellers in that sort of traditional way. They're actually the Guller, Gigi people. So directly sort of tied to living on the islands around Georgia and South Carolina. And so very tied to African culture, have their own language and all of that. And so I really come from just a family that is big on storytelling. My dad, who is just kind of a character, used to always like sort of make up stories and say it to him. So I was always sort of in love with language and like creating adventures, you know, in my mind and with words. So I think it's probably comes, some of that attraction comes from that. I was a big reader because of that. So, yeah. 
You mentioned all the different places that you were before MLK 50, and I'm curious, one at a time here, uh, what were the biggest takeaways from your experiences at, well, start with a um, place that's been in the news recently, the LA Times? Yes, the LA Times. I think my biggest takeaway, that was the first daily I worked at, and and then, and I think to some extent now, you know, it was just known as a quality paper. I mean, I was working there. I started out in copy editing and then got to do some writing. And, you know, when the LA Times called, people would pick up, you know, it had a prestige name. And so I think that's where I really learned how to really be a journalist and to and and have it and learn it at a high standard around really good people. When I was a copy editor, I was constantly reading high quality work. So when I started writing, I was writing at that level. And then I I learned sort of like in a lab that was, you know, high quality. And I think I, I've always taken that everywhere, that sort of thought of like what's possible at that level. That's how, that's kind of formed my thinking. Yeah. So from the LA Times, you go to the Raleigh uh, News and Observer and you were there for a while. What was your biggest takeaway from working there? I think there... So first I did bring that sort of value of, uh, because the, the Raleigh News Observer, all, also an excellent paper, but regional. And I would call places and they would not necessarily, you know, respond yeah. the way. But because I came in the LA Times, I was sort of like, what? You know, was out, I was outraged. And so I, I got very persistent. So that was one thing I, I learned at the News and Observer. But I think the greater thing was I learned with, I worked with a lot of visual artists, both photojournalists and designers and graphic designers. And so I learned the importance of, of you know, the text and the images and how they should work together and how you should work with that person to to tell your story that that's an important important layer and that's continued throughout my career as well yeah i would figure that that definitely played a role in your stop at duke where you were an editor on the alumni magazine what was what was your biggest takeaway from there i think that i got clarity so i have worked as I said, my um, undergraduate degree was in magazine, and I worked for a trade magazine before, right after, right before I went to grad school, sort of right after Syracuse, and and so it brought me back to my magazine roots, was which was great, but but I also I entered Duke at a time it was right in that it was 2013, and it was at in the midst of, I guess, the first sort of downturn in, in newspapers after the recession. And, and I thought I was never, I thought I was leaving journalism. And so I was looking at completely different things. And then this job at Duke came up. And so I, I figured out that I could still do 
that there was a journalism adjacent, you know, like I could still do write stories or tell stories and edit. And it wasn't exactly journalism, but it was like storytelling and there was value in that. And so I think that I learned, I leaned in more into sort of the power of storytelling and that you can really take that anywhere. Yeah. So I, I think that's what Duke gave me. Yeah. So, so from there, MLK 50, how did you end up in this, in your current position? Well, I think it was like many people during the COVID, I was sitting at home and my son was graduating from high school. He, so I watched him during COVID, miss his prom, miss all the good things that are at the end of high school, graduate virtually. And then the that whole, there was George Floyd and all of that upheaval. And it just made me think about his generation and the world that he was inheriting. And I felt like, even though I liked what I was doing at Duke, that I was sort of sitting on the sidelines and allowing the world, my son to walk into a world that he didn't deserve to walk into. And so I wanted to be engaged in the world and changing it and making it better more actively. Uh, and I thought, well, I guess I had to go back to journalism. Like that's my skill set, and that's what I knew how to do. And that is what I think journalism does. You know, that's the service of journalism is to inform, to make change. And so that's what led me to MLK 50. I sort of told people I was looking and a friend of mine sent the, the ad for this position. And as soon as I read it, I was like, this is it. This is where I need to be. This is the job I'm going to have. And, and you were able to get hired for the position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... This is impactful journalism, what, what you try to do at MLK 50. How does the mission statement of the newsroom play out on a day-to-day, story-by-story basis? Well, we developed, we have impact metrics and we have, you know, annual strategies of things we want to do. So our sort of impact metrics are to change policy and practices that keep people poor. The second one is to be a trusted community source that people use to hold power to account. And they come to us with story ideas and they also hold us accountable. And then the third one is shaping and shifting the local news and civic ecosystem in Memphis toward justice. So as with that in mind, and then we break down annual goals that work toward making material change, we, the way we developed our beats are with those metrics in mind. And so we really, although we report the way probably most journalists report, we try to make sure our stories are not just sort of acknowledging or observing that things happen, but sort of tapping into the community and, and told in a way that helps 
kind of moves things forward, help them, the community understand what they can do to, to engage, to be civically engaged. I mean, it really is just as being really sort of intentional and thoughtful with those parameters around, around and like um, checking in on our metrics. Like, did we help inform people? Did we, you know, what did we produce to do that? So we're just very intentional all the time. Yeah. And who, And who's the audience? Well, we talk about audience and community. So audience can be sort of outward facing people outside of Memphis. It can be, you know, donors because we're a nonprofit. And, I, and I'll say there is some overlap between audience and community. Our community is really the people in Memphis, working class, poor, mostly Black Memphians because Memphis is 65% Black. It's a majority Black city working class and poor. So that's how we sort of think about the people we write to. And one thing that I've noticed, and we, we talked to a writer from the uh, newsroom previously, the site seems to be pretty successful, just in that I've seen a lot of new hires recently. How successful has the site been? Well, how, I don't know how you're measuring success. I mean, people are, I, I wouldn't say, we, we have it in terms of uh, community awareness, we still have room to grow there. I mean, we, we're in our, we're entering our seventh year. We just started growing. I mean, we've had a small team longer than we've had this team that we're having. So I think like this is, I think going to be a transformational year for us where we have sort of all things going. We have a bigger team. There's a lot happening uh, in Memphis. So I, I guess we're successful in people believing in our promise. But what we want to be successful at is actually making material change in the life of Memphis. What does a day in the life look like specifically for you in the role that you're in? I am the first editor on the mostly most of the stories that we um, publish. So my day might start with meeting with the editorial staff and talking about stories, what they're working on, maybe editing a story that has been worked on, giving feedback there. Um, I also um, supervise our digital editor, the per person who publishes our site, our visuals editor, the photojournalist and person who would hire illustrators and our audience engagement person. So it's checking in on all of those people and things. Because we're a small team, I often am the person directing hiring and sort of like keeping in touch with different different people, whether we're active, actively recruiting or just want to fill our pipeline. And so I'm always trying to talk to people, see who's out there, who's interesting, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, exciting. I do a lot. <laughs> sure. How big, you, you mentioned staff size a few times. How big is the staff? 
Right now we have, we just recently added our fourth reporter. We have housing, government accountability, we have an enterprise reporter, and we have a public health reporter. So that's four. Uh, we want to add public safety and justice in this quarter. And we also were chosen to be an RFA host newsroom, Report for America. So I'm hoping we'll have someone after June 1st. So we'll stay there for a while. We're also trying to hire a managing editor so that I can sort of shift to more high-level stuff. And that person would do the day-to-day -day editing. That person would also be based in Memphis. I am actually based in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I come to Memphis eight times a year. Um, but as we grow, we really think um, we, the managing editor needs to be in Memphis. So we're looking to do that. On the other, on our development side, we have um, a development director, and we also have a uh, chief of strategy. And then Wendy Thomas, our founder, who um, we hope will be able to shift back to her first love of writing investigative pieces. Oh, very nice. Now, we, you mentioned writing. You write, too. And I'm curious, and we'll go through a couple of them, but what do you want your From the Editor columns to be and represent? When I was growing up, my favorite magazine was Essence Magazine. And the editor then was Susan Taylor, and she would write a column called In the Spirit that was just sort of like this beautiful, it was, it was inspirational. It was just like in that time when she was writing it, it sort of transformed the magazine and, and the way people felt about it and connected. And so I'm inspired by that, but I hope that you to have that spirit of somewhat being personal and inspirational, but also explaining the journey that and the world that we want people to imagine. So, and I'm on that journey too. When we talk about things like policing and understand maybe like abolitionist thinking. You know, I'm thinking and working through those things too. And so I hope that people will learn how we think about journalism and, and, and how we're rethinking and reimagining what journalism looks like and that I'm in the same place as you. This is me learning and thinking about these things too and that you connect and really feel, it doesn't feel wonky, but it feels like a personal journey. So that's really what I want people to take away. You mentioned policing. You wrote a piece called Start Over and Get It Right. It was written after the death of Tyree Nichols, who was killed by five police officers whose legal situations are, are currently at various points in the system. And you wrote about the idea of not defunding the police, but defanging them. What was that one like to write? Yeah, and that that's what I mean about very personal because, you know, when something like that happens, besides being just sort of sad and traumatic, it makes you think, like, how do we make this stop? And when you hear about defunding the police and, oh, not having police, you know, people react to that and they're very like, well, what do you mean? And 
what does that what does that look like and how can we not have police or how can we have fewer police what does that mean and so i wanted to sort of talk through what to me at this point in my life what that means and what i was thinking about in that very sad time about here maybe we could do this you know maybe if if it's the language that hangs you up how about this idea of just cre creating a different space or a different approach and not throwing the police totally out. You know, so I, I think making those conversations of how we can do things differently, accessible and not combative is really important to help with understanding. Especially, it, now, you know. It, it's interesting word choice because defanging like makes me think of snakes and 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 that changes kind of the way that you look at something like what you're talking about in that article compared to the word defunding which as you said is a word that i think is polarizing for for a lot of people just within the process of writing for you what is word choice like oh i mean it's sort of critical i mean you want because any word can change what you're trying to convey. And I, I mean, I had that situation. I really, of course, one of the tender, difficult things happening now is the war between Hamas and Israel. And that's not really a Memphis, you know, predicament. And so I wasn't writing about it. And I also am not very informed about that. But there came a time where there were a lot of journalists being killed and that resonated with me because that because these were local journalists and so there was that connection there and I, I wrote about that and someone who is a friend of MLK50 who also is Jewish was offended by something I wrote and it really was a when we talked about it because I thought it was important to talk to her it was a word that I had changed or maybe left out that made her feel less safe, less comfortable. And like that maybe it was MLK50 wasn't the, the institution, the publication that she wanted. So being able to talk with her and learn from her and explain to her was good and it also again makes it important to think about word choice and how you convey what you want to say and you can't always get it right but i think if you have the right intention then you can always talk about it right yep i want to talk about another piece this one more recent and i will say that as i as i read this one i felt like i could hear someone reading it to me it, it felt very conversational this was coretta a piece called coretta scott king was no prop it focused on the actor jonathan majors some comments that he made that were played during his recent trial for reckless assault and harassment he said he was a quote great man and his girlfriend should support him like coretta scott king and michelle obama did for their husbands you had a line that was i i thought was great and this is why i said it sounded like you were speaking it to me. If I rolled my eyes any farther back, I'd do damage. Uh, 
and there was the kicker on this piece is really good too. It'll be linked in the show notes. What was this one like to write? That was fun. One, I am also, when I was at the News and Observer, I was on the feature side. I used to cover TV, radio, and film. So I'm a big pop culture person. And I think as frivolous as it can be, there are things to learn and explore. So it's always fun to me to write about pop culture and be able to tie it to, to other things and do it in different contexts. So it was really fun to, to pick that up. Of course, you know, we're an entity named after Martin Luther King. So it was, it was right there waiting for me. And, and I had opinions. I really could have written that longer, but I was like, Pull it, rain it in, Adrian. <laughs> Don't go too far. But yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And just to articulate, what was the, the essentially the point that you were making there? Well, really that I, you know, with not just Coretta Scott King, but really Martin Luther King, people flatten them and make them in, and decide who they are or characterize them based on sort of the uninformed idea that they have or that they've learned. That's why every year we sort of do on Martin Luther King's birthday, we've done this a couple of times where we put actual quotes of Dr. King that are not about him having a dream because he was a lot more radical than people want to remember. And people don't want to remember that he was not beloved by the establishment in his time that, you know, that's why he was assassinated. So it, it's important for us to remind a person like John Rogers, like, you don't, you don't actually know Coretta Scott King and you don't know who she is or how she was as a wife. And she was far more than just Dr. King's wife. She had a whole life and that's important to remember. And you referenced uh, the new book that just came out from Jonathan Eig about Dr. King and the comprehensiveness of that, that would Absolutely. probably do, do a lot of people good to, to read. What stories that you've worked on, whether written or edited, are you most proud of? Oh, hmm. The stories that always stay with me the most at MLK 50 that I've edited are the, or when we sort of hit this really this spot where we really speak from the the community and make a greater point. So I think of a piece that our housing reporter did. It was, he really did it as a as told to. And it was about there was a young developer who had taken over these buildings and was they were not in great shape. He was renovating them. And of course, the people who had, were living there, he was renovating them and moved, and they were going to be moved out. And from his position, he was giving them plenty of notice, you know, five months to find a place. And so it seems like for him, well, I'm a good guy. I'm doing a good thing, you know, but I'm also doing my business. But when we talk to the people who are all sort of working class and poor, what they were 
losing in that was more than the apartment. They were losing community. You know, these were people who they looked out for each other's kids. You know, they can't afford childcare. So maybe the woman down the block would look after them or they lived around each other, you know, decades. And so, and when we published the story, the developer and his friends sort of went on social media to defend him, but he was missing the point that, you know, community and the way community operates with each other is as important as sort of like, well, you made this building nicer. So I always, those stories sort of stick with me because it really speaks about something that is often overlooked. I think of a story too that Carrington did, there was a municipal election for a new DA and he came up with the idea to uh, go to the people most affected by decisions of the DA. So we went to the Shelby County Courthouse and talked to people there and asked them, what would you like to see in a DA? And I remember the headline came from something someone said that they want a, a DA with, with a testimony. You know, someone who had been through the kinds of things they'd been through, whether it was fines or their past arrests or actions following them, even as they tried to change their lives. So stories like that, I think, and that story really ended up shaping how we approached the DA race because it allowed them to say, this is what's important rather than us to say, this is what you should be thinking of as important. So I think those kinds of stories always make me feel like we're doing what we're supposed to do. How do elected officials respond to, to the work that you're doing at MLK 50? Some better than others. <laughs> and on January 1st, we had a new mayor was installed in Memphis, and he has pledged to be more cordial with all media, hopefully also us. The last mayor would not speak to us at all. There was a time when we, our founder, along with the Marshall Project, I think, had to sue to to get less there were journalists being surveilled i mean it was quite anti-sense but our reporters have been able to there's always somebody who's willing to talk you know maybe not the top guy but maybe someone further down so we figure it out but we're hopeful <laughs> that this will be not i don't want to say less antagonistic but more professional maybe is the, is the word yeah so our most popular episode was with an MLK 50 reporter, Carrington Tatum. You mentioned him just a second ago, specific to a series of stories he had done on a pipeline being run through the city and specific parts of the city. Carrington left MLK 50 for a job as a business analyst and wrote a rather sad piece about how student loans made being a journalist financially untenable. This was largely a piece about uh, that referenced uh, the struggles of trying to deal with student loans. Uh, Wendy Thomas has written about this. Uh, what can be done to keep the Carringtons and other aspiring Black journalists uh, and just student, and student journalists in, in, who are dealing with uh, student loans uh, in the field? That's a really difficult question because 
um, especially now, we've seen this wave of um, layoffs and instability. It's really hard in that kind of situation to set up structure that helps first generation people who, who may be coming into work with that. Some of the things that have been talked about is to sort of consider that when you're thinking about salary and, and benefits. Understand that there are some people who are coming in at maybe coming in at the same level, but the 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 pay, the salary they are getting doesn't have the same impact. So sort of thinking through that. I think also there's conversations around, you know, things like internships. It is very difficult to for some people to do an unpaid internship at some of these top places that just the the privilege to be able to work there and spend a summer there. You have to find your own place to live. You have to, you know, pay for all of like living in a larger, more expensive city. And that's on you. That makes it really difficult. So I don't know if it's providing funding. It is buying, a, you know, a block of rooms. You know, think, I think just being conscious and aware that if we want a journalism that where people come from all walks of life, you have to think about what it takes to be there. I mean, I saw that happening at Duke where they started to think about how can a first generation student be at Duke? And in many of the schools that also did this, the first iteration is like, well, just giving them enough money to attend, enough financial aid. But then many of the students, the feedback was, well, but it costs a lot just to be you know, at these school, like to live in these cities, to you just go and eat, or you have to get a job, but you also, because you can't afford things, and then you have to, but you're on in this high pressure situation. So then some of the programs changed and there was additional stipends. So I think sort of just really thinking through what is required and and figuring out how to mitigate those difficulties. Thinking it through seems to be a theme, whether it's in thinking through the approach to MLK 50 or thinking through, as you're talking about, the issues that future journalists uh, face uh, from an economic perspective. One other thing kind of tied to this, but what are the other journalism issues that you're most passionate about? Hmm. I would say, I mean, I think this is, one of the reasons I'm attracted to MLK 50 and the work we're doing is just, and maybe this is, this is probably thinking it through too. I think there's just a lot of defaults in journalism and the way things have always been done. And they're not being questioned. And I think it's important that, I mean, a hallmark of journalism is to question everything. And so I'm really passionate about that, like questioning everything. Why do we do it this way? Why is that the way to do it? Why do you think about it this way? Do we have to do it that way? I think that we should really 
do what we say, you know, and I think there were a lot of years, easy example, if you talk about policing, when I first was coming up in journalism, you did not ever question a police report. Like that was the truth, which is crazy when you think about it, because it's not that police lie, it's that people lie, right? And so, or people write things to make themselves look better. I mean, it's just a human thing. And so now that we've seen demonstrations in very vivid ways of that, some of the police reports, people are rethinking and are questioning that. But when you think about it, one of the old sayings in journalism has always been, you know, if your mother says she loves you, check it out, right? Every, we yeah. should be skeptical about everything, but, but we weren't. So to me, one of the things that has to be done is to really be, be who we say we are <laughs> and really do that about everything, including our own methods and our own thinking. You mentioned questioning. I have one last question for you. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Oh, my goodness. You can pick more than one. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm really thinking about all the people who have been laid off recently. And, and so I want to salute people, the people who are just trying to stay in journalism, who are the freelancers and people. I mean, seeing all these messages with people talking about, uh, you know, they've been laid off and they're so happy about the work they got to do and all that. But it's really beautiful to see people in a time where journalists are underseized and disregarded to really stake a claim for journalism's value. I have a particular friend. I'll shout her out. She's been a free, she used to, we worked together at the, at the LA Times and she's a freelancer. Her name is Linnell George. And she's one of those people who has been out here freelancing for years, dedicated to telling stories and and just doing this work. And it's not easy. It's, it's very difficult to be a freelancer and to, and to, you know, thrive and live a good life. Uh, writing is undervalued as a, as a, a craft. And so I really salute everyone who really tries to stay the course and do the work. I'm thinking of an organization, I think I'm going to get the name wrong, but it's it's an organization for freelancers that started Institute for Independent Journalists. Great organization. I think it was started during the pandemic and they they just they had, they started a conference. They just provide a lot of information for freelancers that I assume a lot of people will now have to tap into as they try to stay in the business and try to um, just keep journalism going. So I really just want to salute people who are dedicated and love. Great. Adrian Johnson-Martin, executive editor at MLK50.com. 
strongly encourage people to check out that website. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.